streaming KUT is always great, but you can make the experience even better with our brand new mobile app. You get one-click access to news from KUT, Texas Standard, and NPR on your iPhone or Android smartphone, plus news alerts and your favorite KUT podcasts. Download the all-new KUT app from the Apple or Google Play stores today. And now, enjoy the program. It's time for a healthy Which breakfast. is the number one chocolate for two pizzas for the price of one. A taste so wonderfully fresh. We spend so much time talking about the right to, to migrate, but we don't spend any time talking about the right to stay. I don't want allies. I want comrades in the struggle. Welcome to The Secret Ingredient, a podcast that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. And I'm Tom Philpot from Mother Jones Magazine. I'm Raj Patel from the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. Today's secret ingredient uh, is something that you'll find all the way up and down the food chain. Uh, our, our next guest, uh, our guest whom we met at the Food Chain Workers Alliance uh, meeting, and of course, uh, the, the the idea of workers connecting across different parts of the, of the food system is a story about solidarity. And so, uh, from the Pioneer Valley Workers Centre, we have three fine organisers who can be t- telling us about the work that they do there: Diana Sierra, Andrea Schmidt and Odalis Borraes will be telling us a little bit about the, the work that you're doing there to build worker power and solidarity. And maybe the place to start um, is a question uh, about what a workers' centre actually is. How's that different, say, from a union? Workers' centre really emerge out of the need to organise workers who do not have collective bargaining rights and who have historically been excluded from the mainstream labour movement. And so they emerge out of, in a lot of ways, as the direct product of these neoliberal economic policies that are attacking unions and are expanding these entire workforces where workers do not have collective bargaining rights. And Workers' Center, so they take on a variety of tactics. Um, They normally have diverse sectors of workers working in many different industries with many different employers. And so they combine community organizing with Know Your Rights trainings in order to improve the workplace conditions of workers who tend to be in very low-paying jobs, Um, again, because of their exclusions from unions, oftentimes exclusions that are the product of state policies, but also, unfortunately, um, the reflective of some of the racist and sexist and xenophobic tendencies of the mainstream labor movement itself. And so worker centers, uh, due to who they work with, primarily low-wage workers, immigrant workers, they take on sometimes much broader community fights, whether it's around um, questions of police brutality or workplace mistreatment, but especially what Oalis was mentioning, the the need to take on immigrant rights, since immigrant rights... um, really impact conditions in workplaces. And so that's a very common slogan that immigrant rights are workers' rights and worker centers are some of like the key, I think, key players of the new labor, if you want to call it a new labor movement, but the labor movement that um, is not, you know, historically rooted in unions. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the Pioneer Valley and the kind of workers that you work with there in that worker center. Yeah, so... Um, kind of like the said, right? Like the difference between the, what the Pioneer Valley and what worker centers in general offer is this oppor- incredible opportunity for workers from different sectors to come together. 
So in a union, you would be, you know, when folks are organizing together, they're usually organizing like within the local, right? And so it's usually a very specific kind of um, sector of work, right? So like you, like for instance, UFCW focuses mostly on workers in like the food chain, right? Um, and then like you know, then there's other, then there's teachers and stuff like that. So, um, but at, at the worker center, yeah, in we have two different um, worker committees. One of them is in Northampton, and one of them is in Springfield, and. These are really the two groups that uh, where all of our campaigns and all of the any any kind of organizing that we decide to put capacity into um, is defi- comes out of what decisions are made collectively in these worker committees. And the kinds of folks that are in these committees are actually very interesting because um, a, a little bit about, about Western Massachusetts is that there's a bunch of um, it's a lot of like small cities that are kind of scattered around across this valley, the Pioneer Valley. And in Northampton, um, most of the folks, the economy here is very, you know, there's a lot of small um, local restaurants, which means that there's a lot of most of the folks that we actually are organizing with our restaurant workers. But more specifically, they're um, largely Salvadorian uh, folks who have TPS, which uh, stands for Temporary Protected Status. Um, this is a legal status. This is a status that was given to, um, to Salvadorians. Um, when was it, Diana? It was in two, early 2000s. Well, there have uh, been several iterations right, of yeah. TPS. Yeah, mm-hmm. but basically it was it started in the early 2000s as a result of a natural disaster that took place in El Salvador and has been renewed every year up until um, after up until Trump was elected. Um, it was terminated last year, and basically folks from El Salvador were told that by the end of by uh, by 2019 their TPS would expire, and you know, this has huge implications because what it means is that these folks, after being here and ha- with status and being able to have driver's licenses and being able to, you know, um, yeah, live without the fear of uh, what, you know, folks who are undocumented are often, you know, uh, living with, they, you know, will now be undocumented once again. So a lot of what we've been tackling and trying to organize around in Northampton is really raising awareness of what's going to happen to these folks um, after after the TP, after TPS expires. Um, and so, yeah, and, and, you know, again, going back to the fact that a lot of them are restaurant workers, what we're sort of trying to figure out is, you know, how do we build a, um, a community awareness where we're not only um, letting the community know what the, what the implications of this are, of, of this is for the Salvadoran TPS community, but also how do we hold business owners and employers accountable um, so that, in the, you know, once these folks are undocumented, that they're not vulnerable again to being exploited in the same way that undocumented folks t- are, often are by employers. Mm. Um, so, so that's Northampton. Um, the Springfield Worker Committee is pretty different. Um, and it's, you know, it's a city, Springfield is about half an hour away from Northampton, but the, the, the folks that make up this group are, are vastly, are pr- in a pretty different situation. Most of them are Guatemalan and Mexican. Um, mo- all of them, if not, or no, the uh, vast majority of them are, are undocumented. And as far as what work they do, most of them are farm workers, uh, construction workers, day laborers, and folks that are do uh, landscaping and stuff like that. And so, and the, the biggest thing too is that given that they're, um, given their status, there you you see a lot more. Um, we, I mean, well, at least I do a lot of organizing there, and the the precarious, they're, they're the, the preciousness of the conditions that they're in are it's far greater given the fact that they, um, given given their status. So, um, you know, we in the summertime, for instance, organizing becomes very difficult actually because folks are working seventy hours, I don't know, sixty weeks, sixty seventy hour weeks. Um, 
the kinds the kinds of conditions that folks are often facing, especially when they're you know most of them are working in larger farms like like tobacco farms, um, large scale vegetable farms. Um, the you know people oftentimes will just talk about the things that they face, not being able to get bathroom breaks, not being able to they don't get paid overtime, which is a huge thing in Massachusetts. That farm workers um, are not only making less than the minimum wage, they're making they make eight dollars, and I think the minimum wage for farm workers is eight dollars an hour, um, whereas the standard minimum wage is eleven, right? Mm-hmm. And on, on top of that, they do not make they don't they do not get paid overtime, and so. Yeah, I mean the conditions that that these folks are facing is just it's 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 different, and a lot of the organizing that we are doing around Springfield right now is largely thinking about ways that we can start holding municipal police more accountable um, to not collaborating with ICE, which hmm. is a huge issue um, in Springfield. Which is you know it's it's a very immigrant um, the population is is pretty a strong immigrant population, so um, so yeah. And so are we talking in, in, in the Springfield area, the kind of farms that would sell to farmers markets um, in Northampton? Is it that sort of kind of, you know, nice organic farm with this underground labor situation going on? Or, or what kind of farms are they? The the folks that are, are, are the farm workers that we organize in Springfield, I would say most of them are work are not working those kind of picturesque Western Massachusetts farms. But I think you do. It does bring a good point, which is that, you know, there's a huge um the community here, I think, is really uh, fragmented. Folks from Northampton that are largely, most of the people that live in Northampton and Amherst and sort of what we would call the Northern Valley um, are far more, the, the demographics are far more white, far more upper middle class, far more affluent. And I think that there's this notion that all of, and, and you know, there, there's a, a strong like farmer's market culture. Um, and most of the folks that do work in farms here and in, in those kinds of farms I mean, I do know I do know a few farm workers who are undocumented and who are immigrants who work there, but the vast majority of those folks aren't undocumented farm workers. Um, and I think that there's this there's this notion that that we all like because we're supporting these small farms that we're doing right by folks, right? Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is is that I think the large farmer, the majority of the farm worker, the immigrant farm worker community is pretty is made pretty invisible, um, and it's made invisible by the pride that people take in just like purchasing products from small scale farms, but not really thinking about um, who's working behind, like who's, who's picking the food, you know? Um, so, so that's something that we definitely try to raise awareness around. Um, but I think the conditions around the, the social, the, just the fact that it's a pretty s- fragmented community and that a lot of these folks just aren't actually interacting with each other and, and very much makes it harder. You have to be very intentional around right. like in highlighting these issues. What, what would you say? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I was wondering if you could all just um, briefly talk a little bit about how you came to this work and uh, a little bit about your backgrounds. Oh, Alice is going to go first. La pregunta okay. es de cómo llegaste a este trabajo y un poquito sobre tu historia personal. Bueno, no sé si empezar desde mi historia. Al venir a este país fue muy diferente a como yo había trabajado eh, when I came to this country, it was very different than the conditions I had faced um, at home. Porque yo solo solo sabía este lo que era vender comida y nunca había cosechado de la manera en la que se cosecha aquí. I only knew um, about uh, selling food, and I did not know the specifics of how you cultivate food here. 
Entonces, mi primer trabajo que obtuve aquí en los Estados Unidos fue como trabajadora de campo. My first job here in the United States was as a farm worker. Y pues, este, en mi, en mi primer, en este trabajo, es, conocí a muchas personas que eran mexicanas, guatemaltecas, que son las que más hacemos el trabajo. In this type of work, I met a lot of Mexicans and Guatemalans, and we are, tend to be the majority of people in this type of work. Pero a la vez, como no, no todos tienen la educación que, que merecen, no saben sus derechos. Uh, many of them don't have the education that they deserve, and so they are ignorant of their rights. Entonces, uh, empezar a trabajar ahí me hizo como ver la situación por la que todos pasaban, porque no tenían tiempo para ir al baño, no tomaban agua, y solo tenían un lunch, que era solo el almuerzo. And being... In that situation, I started to see the conditions that all of us were facing. We didn't have time to go on a bathroom break. We didn't have time from, for lunch. ¿Cuál era el otro ejemplo? Baño. Y que solo tenía una hora de lunch, pero igual no era pagada. Oh, yeah, unpaid breaks. Yeah. Y trabajaban demasiado a la hora que los maestros, que los, que, perdón, que el patrón decía, uh, había tanto trabajo y nunca nos daba el tiempo que necesitábamos para, para cortar las verduras. The, bo the boss demanded a certain output, but it wouldn't give us enough time to be able to cut the vegetables. Siempre era como un, como un patrón que nos decía que nos apuráramos ya, que necesitaba eso ya. Era un trabajo que nos pedía a última hora. The boss was always pressuring us to work faster, that he needed the product now, always pushing us at the very last minute. Y en ese año, como era mi primer año, trataba de trabajar más rápido. Since it was my first year working there, I tried to work faster. Entonces el señor siempre tomaba a los que trabajaban más rápido y los mandaba a hacer otros trabajos para que cuando terminaran podrían llegar a ayudar a los demás. And so, since I worked faster, I and others were sent to do other jobs so that we could help the rest of the team finish faster. Entonces, cuando terminó ese año, esperamos al otro, al otro verano para ir a trabajar a otra nurse. Um, when that year ended, we, we waited until the next summer to be able to work at another farm. Yeah. Entonces, esta, esta, esta granja era de flores. Pero aunque daban breaks y, y daban todo lo que se necesitaba, abusaban de uno de una manera diferente. And I worked at a flower farm, and even though they gave us breaks, they took advantage of us and abused us in other ways. Siempre nos decían, si se quedan a trabajar, les damos cenas y, podría, y, pueden, y pueden trabajar. Y siempre, nunca, nunca supimos, bueno, yo durante, trabajé en, esa, en las dos granjas, nunca supe sobre... Sobre, sobre el overtime. And when I worked on both these farms, I never knew about overtime, even though in this particular uh, farm that uh, cultivated flowers, they would tell us, oh, if you stay longer, you can have dinner here. Entonces, ese año pasó y entonces nunca volví a esa, a esa granja en la, de flores porque me había pasado un accidente en el cual nadie se hizo responsable. And I, that year passed, and I never went back to that um, farm that cultivated flowers because I suffered an accident, and they never assumed responsibility for it. Entonces empecé 
En mayo primero empecé a conocer al Centro Obrero por medio de otra persona. And um, through another acquaintance, I came to know about the Worker Center in May. Entonces, como cada mayo hacen una manifestación por el, por el Día de los Trabajadores, eh, conocí a toda, a, con las personas con las que estoy trabajando, que es Rose, Diana, Gabriela y las demás personas. And every year they organize a May Day, which is an International Workers' Day, and there that's how I came to meet my co-workers, Rose, Andrea, Gabriela, Diana, so forth. Entonces, aún... En ese entonces todavía no sabían eh, sobre derechos y cosas, como todavía no lo sé. Pero entonces no encontré, eh, en ese mismo verano que, que ya venía, se acercaba, no encontraba trabajo, entonces tuve que volver a la, a mi primer trabajo, a la primera granja donde trabajé. So at that time, I didn't really know about my rights. I feel like I'm still learning. But that summer, I couldn't find work, so I had to return back to the original farm. Y pues, seguía haciendo los mismos tratos. No había cambiado nada. It was the same conditions. Nothing essentially had changed. Simplemente que con la diferencia de que habían contratado personas que sí tenían documentos. The major difference is that they were hiring people who did have documents. Y... Simplemente las personas indocumentadas tenían que hacer más trabajo que los demás y el tiempo lo tenían contado. Undocumented workers had to do much more work than the documented workers, and they were surveilled, and all their hours were um, very closely tracked. Entonces fue cuando empecé a trabajar con lo de los surveys. And that's when I started to get involved in these farm worker surveys at the worker center. Que es sobre las experiencias y las condiciones eh, en el trabajo. And the surveys document the experiences and workplace conditions on the farms. Incluyendo los abusos, aunque muchas personas para ellos no son abusos lo que pasa. Including many of the abuses that take place on the farms, even though many workers don't recognize them as abuse. Eh, y entonces fue cuando eh, empecé a venir a los comités y empezaron a hacer comités en Springfield. And that's when I got involved in the worker committees and I became involved in the worker committee in Springfield. Y desde, desde ese entonces empecé como voluntaria y después empecé como a tener algunas horas pagadas sobre en, los, en las encuestas. Después fue cuando me fui envolviendo más y me di cuenta que cada persona tiene algo, un, tiene un propósito en esta vida y que nada pasa por cualquier cosa, sino que siempre hay, siempre hay un propósito. Y pues también este, había estado sin mi mamá mucho tiempo y cuando ella vino a ese país, este, todo había cambiado porque ya no era la misma situación de antes. So I started to get involved first as a volunteer and then I was paid to do these uh, farm worker surveys. Now I'm an organizer and I feel that each person in this life has a, a larger purpose. I think we all have a larger purpose. ¿Cuál era ese punto sobre tu mamá? Ah, sí, desde que... Eh, cuando yo empecé a organizar me di cuenta que, que todos teníamos un propósito, pero a la vez este, las cosas habían mejorado porque mi mamá había, había estado mucho tiempo sin ella y encontrarla de nuevo fue como algo que me motivó a seguir trabajando sobre las personas documentadas y sobre sus derechos. So when I started to organize, that's when I started to feel that everyone has a larger purpose. And when I was reunited with my mom, it really gave me sight of that larger purpose, um, learning about 
the the rights and the injustices that undocumented people face. Y simplemente este lo lo en la otra parte de mi vida en la escuela en high school me di cuenta de que no todos teníamos la misma igualdad y el mismo respeto como otros. And in high school, that was also an important experience. I learned that not all of us were treated with the same equality and respect. Que si no eres, que si no tienes documentos, no cuentas. If you don't have papers, it's as if you're not worth anything. Eres más como un cero a la izquierda porque nadie te cuenta. It's, it's as if you're like minus zero in some way because no one takes you into account. En ese tiempo, recuerdo que hubo un problema y una maestra me dijo que qué hacía en esa escuela, que debía estar en otro lugar y no ahí. There was a problem that happened at school and a teacher asked me what, I, what was I doing in this school that I shouldn't be here. Pero después, es, la maestra con el tiempo se dio cuenta que había cometido un gran error al decírmelo porque eso fue lo que me empujó más a ser una buena estudiante. But after some time, that teacher came to realize that what she had said to me was a huge mistake because what she said to me motivated me to keep working and to be a really good student. Con el tiempo, conocí a más personas que eran de mi país y empecé a hacer amistades, pero eso no me quitaba los problemas de encima, las per eh, personas queriendo golpear a hispanos, personas queriendo decirte que eres documentada de una manera grosera, Um, and being at the school, I learned and met more people um, from my country of Guatemala, but I also saw how they wanted to beat up Latinos. They would ask you in a really offensive way, are you undocumented? Hasta que con el tiempo empecé a conocer un poco de la historia de Estados Unidos y ya podía defenderme un poco sobre eso. And then I started to learn more about the history of the United States and I could defend myself more. Y cuando, pues, en ese entonces fue cuando empecé a conocer al Centro Obrero y me, no siento que, que empecé a ser grosera, pero empecé a responderles de una manera en la que era respetuosa y educada y a la vez tratar de defender a todas las personas a las que ellos trataban mal. And at the same time, I, that's when I got involved in the Worker Center. And it's not that I was being rude, but I definitely was responding in a respectful and educated manner to be able to defend myself and others who, whom they were targeting. Y en ese entonces, que fue, estuve a punto de, es, me gradué, pero al final recuerdo lo que una maestra me dijo un día y me dice que todo lo que yo tenía en la mesa, ella lo estaba pagando con su dinero. And the day I graduated, um, I'll never forget what a teacher told me, that everything that I had on my table that she was paying for with her money. Y que todas las personas y documentadas nunca pagaban taxes. And that all undocumented people never pay taxes. Y que siempre tenía miedo de estar a la par de un indocumentado criminal porque no sabía lo que podrían hacer. And that she was always afraid to be next to a criminal undocumented immigrant because she didn't know what they would do. Pero recuerdo que en ese momento... Solo la miré y le dije que tal vez podríamos, que nosotros, nosotros no somos criminales, pero estamos aquí por un propósito y que por eso es que ella tenía un trabajo. And in that moment, I just stared at her and I said, we're not all criminals. And I said to her, if you have a job, it's because of us. Porque ella estaba en esa clase enseñándonos a nosotros inglés. Entonces, Because no te... she was in that classroom teaching us English. Ella decía que todas las personas que pasaban 
por una frontera eran ilegales criminales que eso los manchaba. She said that all people who crossed the border illegally um, were all illegals and that they were tainted. They were stained. Pero recuerdo que una vez en clase ella dijo que había sido inmigrante en, en Germany. But I remember one day that in class she said that she had, herself had been an immigrant in Germany. Pero entonces le pregunté, si usted fue ilegal, ¿por qué critica a otros ilegales? If you were once illegal, I said to her, why do you criticize other people who have an illegal status? ¿Acaso eso la, también le hizo, la hizo criminal a usted? Did that make you a criminal when you were illegal in Germany? Y ella dijo, no. And she said, no. Pero en ese entonces... Recuerdo que me había dicho que me fuera de su salón. In that moment, she kicked me out of her classroom. <laughs> Entonces, me, me enojé tanto que me paré y había muchos hispanos y les dije, vámonos. And in that moment, I got really upset and I said to them, let's all go, let's leave, because the majority of the, my classmates um, were all Hispanics. En ese entonces todos dijeron, ah, pues vámonos. And, eran todos and because they were all Mexicans, they got up and left with me. Y después ella llamó a la principal y le dijo que yo estaba haciendo un movimiento en, en la escuela, en toda la clase. And she, the teacher called the principal and accused me of trying to um, stir up a movement in the classroom and in the school. <laughs> Pero yo también sabía que ella no tenía derecho a preguntarle a uno si era legal o ilegal. But I also knew that as a teacher she had no right asking us what our legal status was, whether we were documented or undocumented. Entonces la maestra me dijo que si... La principal llegó donde mí y me dijo que si todo estaba bien y yo le dije que sí, que solo me había defendido. And the principal came to speak with me and asked me if everything was all right and I said, yes, everything's fine, but I just defended myself. Fue cuando ya tenía relaciones con mis maestros y le pregunté al maestro de historia sobre... Le empecé a contar lo que me había pasado, pero nunca le dije el maestro, el nombre de la maestra. I already had a relationship with some of my teachers and um, I... I told them what had happened, but I didn't tell them the name of the teacher. Entonces él me dijo que esa maestra estaba loca y que y que si algo pasaba que me le, yo le podía decir, pero el maestro está, eh, estaba cerca de la maestra. El salón del maestro estaba cerca de la maestra. The teacher said that if anything happened, that he I could confide in him, and that that teacher who had said that to me was crazy. But his classroom was very close to this other woman's classroom. Entonces. Fue cuando empezamos a hablar con el maestro sobre un poco de leyes y él me empezaba a enseñar. Entonces fue, entonces fue donde yo sentí que tenía el momento para decirle a él que quería hacer como un movimiento con, los, con las personas ahí. Y le conté que entonces empecé a ser activista y él me dijo que eso era algo grandioso, que, que porque no se lo había contado y entonces... Eh, el día de mi graduación, me acuerdo que todos los maestros fueron y me abrazaron y me llevaron unas rosas así de grandes. Y me dijeron que había sido la mejor alumna de que siguiera adelante. So with this teacher, I started to learn more about um, immigration law and I started to trust him and tell him about my own activism. And the day I graduated, they brought me roses um, and they said that, that I was the best student and they told me to keep fighting. Y entonces hago eso. And so since then, that's what I've been up to. Fantastic. Wow. And what, how old were you when you came to the U.S.? Adalis? Fifteen. Fifteen. Okay. And then, can you just tell us, your mom was already here? No. No. So she, did she come from Guatemala when you were in Massachusetts already? And then you were reunited there? Yeah. Okay. But I was born here, 
but my mom's dad died, so we moved to Guatemala, and I stayed there like, for a long time. Okay. And then we come back, but she couldn't pass, and then we stayed here for a year and a half without her. And then when she come back, every, everything was different because she bring me some energy, and it was good to have her. Mm-hmm. Wow. Sure. Wow, what a story. And so that, um, you went to high school in Springfield? Yeah. Okay. That teacher sounds like a real mm. nightmare. Yeah, you should give <laughs> me her name. Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, um, Andrea, yeah, and Deanna, what, about, what about you guys? So Andrea's just nodding to me. So um, I'll start. So I moved to the United States when I was five years old in 1994 from Colombia. And we came here with my, my father, my mother, and my older brother. And we came here on a tourist visa and expired. And so we were undocumented up until December of 2011. And I grew up on Long Island. Um, I grew up in Suffolk County, and I went to school with very wealthy white children. My mom was a domestic worker for most of her time, and my dad did a bunch of low-wage work, including restaurant work, and worked um, doing delivery services. And so I guess my initial politicization was being the daughter of a domestic worker and being undocumented and seeing the treatment that my mom suffered at the hands of her white female employers. I was very conscientious from a very young age that I was a daughter of the maid. And um, I was also very much encouraged by my mother to go to school. And she was very insistent on that fact. She's like, I clean houses, you go to school. That's the deal that we have. And at the same time that that all was going on, I grew up in a home of domestic violence. And so my first political identity when I was 12 was as a feminist. And my father used our legal status against us so that my mom wouldn't divorce him. And um, that way, you know, he could maintain power over the family. And then when I was 15, me and my brother kicked my dad out of the house. And um, so that was a very, like, I see that experience as, like, my first direct action where me and my brother made a conscious decision that my dad couldn't stay there anymore because he was going to end up killing my mother. And I went to... High school, I was always a really good student. I was always really into history. And this is around the same time of the edge of my liberalism when I was in high school. I knew that things were really screwed up. And I started to learn about US intervention in Latin America. I read Pablo Neruda in a Spanish class and started to do more research about United Fruit Company. I read 100 Years of Solitude and the scene of the banana massacre was incredible. And so I started to do more research and learning about that that was all true. And for me, it really clicked because I was extremely ashamed and felt that I didn't have a right to criticize the United States, that I had to be a grateful, a grateful spick, excuse the language, but that was how I felt. And so learning about U.S. intervention just gave me a completely, it was as if I was like a fish in water and I could finally see the water about everything that had shaped my life and that of my families and why I was there. And I went to college, to City College of New York. Um, I was still undocumented, but thanks to immigrant rights organizing, I was able to pay in-state tuition. And I became very active in different um, socialist organizations. And, um, but my mom still worked as a domestic worker, working for really wealthy white families, banker families in, in Manhattan. And she would call me every weekend crying about 
And my mom's a very proud, tough cookie. <laughs> um, so she would cry alone so that as a defiance out of her employers. And, um, you know, in college, I radicalized very quickly and um, came to the very fast realization that we needed to overthrow these oppressive systems of white supremacy and capitalism and imperialism and patriarchy. And, um, and then I went to graduate school and because that, my mom's words of you need to go to school, I ended up getting my PhD and um, working in El Salvador and I learned a lot about people's on the ground resistance and peasant guerrilla movements and resistance to U.S. intervention. And it kind of came full circle because the women that I mainly work with here now are from El Salvador, and I think it's, ex and that's something that we can talk about later on, it's extremely important that Latino immigrants know their history, know that we come from a legacy of revolutionary movements, mm -hmm. that there are reasons why we're being forced to migrate to the United States, that it's part of the criminalization of workers, it's part of the controlling of workers and their mobility, and that we need to build a revolutionary working class movement in order to literally save the planet. <laughs> There's really no other way of putting it. Um, we don't have the, the luxury of just, oh, let's just wait around and see what happens. Like this is a life or death situation. And, um, and so now that I have the privilege of having citizenship, I got my green card and then I was able to get citizenship um, about a year ago. And then a few months later, I participated in my first civil disobedience when I got arrested outside of Immigration Customs Enforcement Office in support of Lucio Perez, a Guatemalan undocumented father who's been in sanctuary for over a year now and who uh, our organization has been supporting. And for me, it was really important to not be, because it's, it's, you know, real talk. There are a lot of Latinos. Once they get papers, they forget about their people. There are a lot of hierarchies in the Latino community about where you're from, your nationality, and your legal status. You know, we can look at the figures of, of, of immigrants who supported Trump, and that, that's real talk. And so I, did, I feel very strong that I need to support other people um, like my mother because I am still very hurt by the fact that she was so alone during those moments and that I wish there could have been a worker center there to support her. So that's my story. Sorry, I'm getting, I always get so emotional talking about my mom. <laughs> That's incredible. That's really Thank you. Really I know, I'm like, I'm watching her and I'm like, oh no, I'll, no. I'm like crying. <laughs> I cry in Spanish. <laughs> mm -hmm. Andrea? Wow, what am I what am I supposed to say now after those <laughs> stories? Oh, you got your own juicy story, girl. <laughs> um... Let's see. So similarly to Adalise, I was born here in the U.S., um, but actually was just literally birthed, my, like popped out here. My mom came to have me in the U.S. because she wanted me to be a citizen. Um, and then we and, and but I li grew up in Honduras until I was about eight years old. Um, and my parents, my family moved from Honduras to Miami um, right in 2001, right before 9-11 happened, actually. I had been going to school for about a month when it happened. And so I think that's a very interesting time to like mm -hmm. start my, my life here. Um, and the biggest reason why, I mean, there were a few reasons, but one of the, I know that one of the driving factors that, that um, pushed my parents to making the decision to move and to leave their family behind was really that um, the city that we lived in, in San Pedro Sula, in Honduras, um, was getting very, was, was changing a lot. Um, the violence uh, really related to... Um, to gang the gang violence and you know which was obviously being uh, 
came out of like the poverty that it was increasingly becoming a problem in San Pedro um, was really changing things. And, you know, I think I'm, I think about my parents, put myself in their shoes and they had two, three, three small children and um, an opportunity to, to migrate. And so they did. Um, and so we moved to Miami. I grew up in a really interesting neighborhood. And I think I, I wasn't really politicized until I like maybe until I was around 15. But the, the, the stuff that I witnessed and experienced in this neighborhood, I think really, even though it was never inherently political, it was just what it was. It was a, it was a very middle class um, immigrant neighborhood. Everyone there had just moved and everyone was fleeing, even though they never said it this way. But now I, when I think back now, you know, everyone was fleeing uh, for whatever reason, state violence that they were experiencing in their country. And so, but the interesting part was that it was pretty right wing. <laughs> a lot of the folks that were in my neighborhood weren't um, at all connected to the revolutionary movements that I am so committed to right now. They were often coming more from the right wing aspect of it. Um, so, but at the same time, you know, a lot of the struggles that they were facing were inherently struggles that, you know, we talk about like how immigrate the immigration crisis happened right after Trump won, but it was something that people in my neighborhood uh, families, uh, parents of, you know, a lot of my friends were experiencing. So I had a bunch of friends that were undocumented. Um, and it was just sort of this normal thing that wasn't at all like a political identity. It just was what it was. You know, my mom, for instance, would do um, oftentimes she would help people cross the border. And this was just like a normal thing in my household. Like she would give her phone number, our home phone to people um, to give to their relatives who were crossing. And they would actually call my house to let her know that they were either about to cross or they had just crossed. And my mom would actually coordinate and like facilitate discussions between family members um, and would call back folks in Honduras to like let them know where they were and stuff like that. And it was very interesting to me now in retrospect that, you know, this was never this was just what needed to be done, but it was never a political thing. Um, so I would say immigration and understanding just like the struggle of, of, you know, of choosing to leave and having no choice but to leave and the pain of those that stay behind and that you leave behind, that was mm-hmm. always an issue and a discussion in my family. And it's, it, it was just what it was. Um, but, you know, my, my political, I became more politicized really in college. Um, I was really involved in the climate justice movement for a while, for many years and what really drew me to that was thinking about how, you know, Honduras is one of the most vulnerable countries to climate change, um, not just because of its geographic and, you know, like, I guess, what would you call like uh, the weather conditions and like the fact that it's in the tropics, but because of the fact that it's so impoverished, um, you know, as I'm sure you guys know, like, you know, it's really countries in the global south that are increasingly becoming more more vulnerable to climate change, given the fact that the state and communities are just not equipped to deal with the the unpredictable nature of climate in these areas. And I became really um, involved in, you know, just following indigenous movements, anti-capitalist indigenous movements that were happening in Central America more and more. I was really committed to the movement, um, that the organization that Berta Cáceres started um, in Honduras. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Berta Cáceres, but yeah. she was a Honduran... Um, what, what, what would you call her? A, a feminist, uh, anti-capitalist, <laughs> climate justice organizer that very uh, successfully actually organized a blockade of um, for a hydroelectric plant that was getting built in an indigenous community without any without their their approval. And she organized this and actually was able to and was successful. And then she was later murdered by the by the, by the Honduran government and the multinational company that was um, 
that was funding this project. And that happened about two years ago, um, and it was completely devastating to me. Um, and it just represented so much of, like, the, I don't know, the pain and the struggle that the Honduran people, but, but also, you know, the incredible capacity and and force that the hundred that you know Central American people have. So after I graduated from from college, uh, right as the the 2016 election happened, and it really became increasingly clear to me that organizing was really the only thing that made sense for me to get involved in. I didn't really. It became clear to me that the state wasn't really going to do much for us, and I didn't. I don't. And I still f- fully believe this, if not more, that the state was is never and was and it clearly is not really trying to figure out what our best interests are, and that we needed to figure out how to solve our own solutions collectively. And I started realizing that I trusted communities more than I trusted governments, um, and so I think that was like a very clear but simple <laughs> realization that drew me to this work. And the first kind of you know, organizing I engaged in was going to um, Germany last year for COP23. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with COPs, but they're like, the UN basically has these conference of parties every year, and they do them around the issue of climate change. They've been doing 23 of them. Now, actually, I think the 24th one is about to happen, if not happening, mm-hmm. but they happen every year. Uh, it's a space where, you know, governments come together, um, nonprofits, a lot of lobbying happens, and a lot of organizing happens in the space. And I went with a youth group that was doing a lot of lobbying and direct action work for climate justice issue, on climate justice issues in this, in, in this area. So I went with the group. We organized some really great stuff. We disrupted um, the only uh, <laughs> the only event that the U.S. that the Trump administration was sponsoring last year was a panel with. This is all in a in a in a in a conference for climate change, right? He, they invited um, uh, uh, CEOs from nuclear, uh, natural gas, and coal in the coal industry, okay. and also some of like his like sustainability person was there too. <laughs> and they were. This was the only event that Trump was having in the whole conference. And what we did was we organized a walkout that left the room pretty much mostly empty. And the way we did it was also by singing a song that had like a really. Um, clear anti-coal message and we actually were able to just disrupt the whole thing and it was really successful and wonderful but it also um, made me realize you know while I was there that it wasn't rooted in communities it wasn't rooted in my community it was happening in this sort of pretty like inherently neoliberal space the UN and pretty that was pretty disconnected to to the whole community and I was really struck by there were a lot of indigenous rights groups that were there that were coming um, and we're very clearly representing agendas that they weren't just bringing themselves as individuals, but they were bringing agendas that their whole communities had planned for through the grassroots work that they were doing to, you know, uh, to fight for their rights, to fight for their land, to fight for um, for their families and their futures. And it became really clear to me that while this work was really useful to me um, and I learned a lot that I needed to just get back to my community and figure out what I needed to do there. And at that point, given that my my parents have actually moved back to Honduras about three years ago, the com- the only community I could really think about was the one I had been in for the past four years in Western Massachusetts. And I had strong relationships here. I felt really accountable to the to the Central American community here through restaurant work and just like relationships I had built. And so um, I came back and had sort of this idea that I would just start building relationships and figuring out what needed to be done. And so I sort of stumbled into community organizing by literally just coming home and like working a bunch of weird random jobs, feeling a little bit lost, and then 
stumbling into a job description for the worker center <laughs> and uh, and sort of applying on a whim. And um, and I'm really glad. I mean, it's been the most incredible experience in this past year. Uh, Deanna's like absolutely my mentor. Um, and uh, I've learned so much from her and I've learned and it's it's been incredible to work in a collective of women who who are trying to address issues in the community collect and, and bring as many people as possible to the table. Um, so yeah, and yeah, the radicalization continues. It's like absolutely not over <laughs> for me. <laughs> um, th- w- when I hear these three amazing stories, uh, I-, I hear ways that the the, the in-, in different ways that the-, the three of you are trying to build this this idea of solidarity. I mean, w- one of the ways that workers are um, disempowered is because workers are not allowed to ask things or know things. Um, they're not invited to make the links between climate change and migration and uh, or, you know, not, not allowed to, to remember uh, and be, are prevented from remembering you know, the, the histories of, of you know, revolutionary organizations um, in places where they once lived or, or continue to live. Uh, and they're prevented from knowing things about other workers. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm wondering if you can perhaps d- tell us a little bit about how it is you build solidarity through knowledge, through, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the surveys, if you you'd like to talk about that but if if you if you want to talk of us talk to us about history or about the, the art that you use in order to be able to broker this knowledge and this this you know to reclaim this power of knowing things and being able to ask questions i'd love to hear more about how it is that, that you use the, those processes to be able to build the solidarity in our worker committees the 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 major campaigns and the direction of the organization as a whole emerge from the worker committees which are places in which ordinary workers are identifying solutions to collective problems and the the worker committee really draws its inspiration from workers councils as the the basic unit of democratic you know workers control over the economy but since we're not there yet <laughs> we have to start somewhere and so that's where the a lot of the learning and the leadership development and the conscientization that process of developing political consciousness happens and so we draw a lot from political education i'm really fortunate that i had the opportunity to work with salvadoran popular educators who use popular education to lead literacy campaigns in El Salvador and in all over Latin America linked to these armed struggle movements. But it's really about providing people with the basic tools that they need to be able to participate and trusting that people know their own experiences and know their problems firsthand. And it's just a matter of coming together and making a plan together. And we also draw in history. Um, History, I think, is a really important tool that gives people concrete answers to why does inequality exist? Or in the worker committees, why do the white workers think that they're better than us? Or why are we forced to come here? And so it's with history that we can start to answer a lot of these questions. Obviously, we have to make the path ourselves. And so those are the general, I think, impulses of the worker centers, but I think the best example of how we've applied that into an actual model and practice is through our rapid response network. After the Trump election, there was increasing fear in the immigrant community. And obviously, as a side note, we all know that it was under the Obama administration who built the deportation apparatus. And so we have no illusions about the Democratic Party and that (laughs) role. But 
for a lot of people, there was increasing fear, and they were feeling it on the ground of increasing explicit bigoted racism. And so we came together to um, have these series of community forums where people were talking about the basic things that they needed, access to legal services or rides and so forth. And from there, we created uh, Sanctuary in the Streets, the Rapid Response Network of Western Massachusetts. We created a 24-hour hotline. We created um, uh, access to, to legal services, partnering with legal service providers. And now we are a rapid response network of 2,500 people who are ready to rapidly mobilize. We've trained around 800 to 900 people who know how to, who've gone through a series of several hour trainings of what it's like to, um, to disrupt uh, a deportation as it's taking place or a detention. And we've uh, utilized the network. And I see it, the struggle as being both offensive and defensive. It's defensive in the sense that workers and immigrants need things in the here and now because they're suffering. But we don't want to just be putting out fires. And we're not about just charity. We're <laughs> about building power. And so we need to engage in these offensive fights. And so what that looks like concretely is that we've utilized the network to um, show up to May Day actions, um, to threaten employers that if you don't get your act together, you're going to have a little visit from Sanctuary in the Streets. Mm. And and that is what we're still in the process of doing right now. And it's a really incredible, I think, moment we're in in the organization where the worker committees, both of them are really built in a place where they can are in a place to identify their campaigns and how they want to move forward. And Sanctuary in the Streets is uh, participating within that. And that's where we see solidarity as being so important. I personally have a lot of beef with the term allyship. I don't want allies. I want comrades in the struggle. I want people who see their work in this. They're not participating out of guilt. They're participating because they understand that the liberation of workers and immigrants is key to their own liberation. And that is the kind of culture that we're trying to build in sanctuary in the streets. Um, and for workers themselves, we have a lot of white restaurant workers mm -hmm. who wanted to see themselves as allies. And I'm like, no, you got to come to the worker committee. You're part of this. You're part of this fight as well. And so I think that's the, the most um, concrete way that we've been trying to build this politic of solidarity. And then also Odalis and Andrea can talk about how we try to build solidarity within the Latino community, because there is a lot of beef and division among Central American workers themselves. Yeah, totally. There is. And Know Your Rights trainings have been the most concrete way that we have been um, building political consciousness. From my experience in, in doing base building work in Springfield, migrating is such a, I mean, right now, I think I need to give a shout out to the, the, the migrant march that's happening, the, the, what they're calling the caravan that's coming from Honduras of like thousands of folks who are migrating together and have made the decision to do it together, right? Most of the time, folks are migrating in small amounts, it's, and it's, it's, a very, it's a very individual, individualized experience. And I feel like when people come here, you can almost see that the, the way that society alienates folks to just thinking about themselves, thinking about their next steps, um, makes it even easier, I think, for them to feel so isolated that they don't really feel like there's an option but to get exploited in situations, be it in their jobs and also given what their status is. And so doing Know Your Rights trainings, both for immigrant rights and workers' rights, which is sort of what we do, the, the training we do covers like the basic scenarios of what happens if ICE comes to your door, what happens if ICE comes to your workplace, what happens if you get stopped in the, while you're driving, right? But it also touches on workers' rights be it for restaurant workers and farm workers, and talks about 
um, you know, overtime, talks about the minimum wage um, and the different and also covers the history of why the minimum wage for farm workers is different than the minimum wage for restaurant workers or, you know, standard workers. It's because it's rooted in this history of racism and slavery, really, mm-hmm, in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and naming that, I think, is a really important way. I mean, a lot of folks, you know, I often think a lot of Latino folks there and it's not just Latino folks. There's a huge division, I think, within the the African-American black community and the Latino community. Um, and even within that, within the Latino community, there's a huge division between the Central American community and the Caribbean, more like Afro-Latino folks. And naming that that history is always, I think, a way of like building solidarity, right? <laughs> Among different groups. But it also, I think, makes folks realize that the issues that they're facing in the workplace aren't issues that they're that they're alone that they're experiencing on their own. It's really issues that people in the room have come together and said, like, oh, that happens to me too. Like, oh, I also don't get breaks. Like, oh, I, as a woman, like, I am often not allowed in the farms to go to the bathroom, and like, men can go and it's super easy, but like, I have to like, you know, mm-hmm. hold it. And talking about like sexual abuse, you know, like a lot of there's we've had you know multiple like people like talk about like. A particular manager in a workplace like bring up like and you know and then you start making those connections and and trying to like facilitate a discussion that is that is gentle and supportive and also calls out the fact that that this is this is unacceptable um and so through these trainings um which are you know people are doing them all around the country it's an old tool an, an old organizing tool but i think it's really powerful and i think one of the things that we've also been doing is also training folks from the committee to be able to do them on their own. And with that, you know, the way that the training usually ends is that we have our hotline cards, our 24-hour rapid response hotline cards. So once the training is done, you know, the idea is that, you know, it doesn't just end there. Like, you are you know, you can join the committees. There's also a hotline that you can call anytime. And it's a way that we use, that we build trust, too, because this is, it's, it is such an alien, oftentimes I think folks feel so alienated and have been keeping so many things to themselves that I've definitely done a training and then have had someone not tell me anything on the spot of something they've been going through in the workplace, but have called the hotline later on and have wanted to talk about it based on the connection that we made. And so, so that's another way that we, that we, you know, organize (laughs) rather effectively, I would say, but always can be better. (laughs) One of the things that we are doing, as I said before, is the farm worker surveys. This getting involved with the solidarity because when we are making the surveys, we notice things that are so worst that people have lived before, and they begin to say, "I don't think anything's gonna change." But when we invite them to the community, they begin to know their rights. They are like, "Yeah, I have someone who's going to support me." Mm. So it seems like. In each question, we give, like, we take something from them, like their experience, and sometimes they begin to expand themselves. They they begin to be more confident, and they begin to tell their, us what's happening in their farms, what's the views they're coming from, and what they confront in their farm. Because uh, in... White people and Latinos people have a different places in where they work in farms, mm. so they get paid different mm-hmm. too. Under the table sometimes it depends what your work is. So and yeah, I mean I have been working there, so I know how people feel. What is be scared of 
your boss telling you, you say something, I'm going to fire you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the people begin to to talk and say, actually, the surveys are totally confident. We can say nothing who is the people who say the things. So this is going to help us to get more support and evidence that people are saying, and this farm happened this, mm -hmm. and and how much abuse they are coming from. So, yeah, I think it's one way to be solidary, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And the questions yeah. on the surveys are, are open-ended about the experiences of the farm workers. Is that correct? Right. Okay. So so we're talking here, it's... Um, we're talking here late in October, about a week and a half before a major national election, and it seems like the Republican Party has chosen as its strategy to whip, sort of whip up frenzy around this sort of frothing fear of this menace literally coming from Central America and mm -hmm. immigrants coming from Central America. And two of you guys are from Central America, and your organizing <laughs> is based... Um, you know, largely on organizing people from Central America there uh, in Massachusetts. And I wonder how this sort of atmosphere of, you know, sort of frothing hatred is affecting your work. Mm, yeah, that's a good question. Is it sort of galvanizing people, um, you know, on the ground there? Is it... Um, is it creating tensions? What's it like there on the ground in the middle of this, um, of these outbursts from Trump and Fox News and other candidates? It's painful. It's really painful. <laughs> um, and I think Odalise, I mean, Odalise and I, for instance, have been, one of the things that we talked about this week was, what are we going to do? What are we going to do with the people that we're organizing with? What are we going to do with the skills that, I mean, we have, we have skills to, you know, facilitate things and whip things together as organizers. And how, as this becomes an increasing, you know, I, I heard yesterday that they're deploying, he's deploying 800 troops to go down there, mm -hmm. calling it a, an emergency, state of emergency or something. Um, you know, like, <laughs> this is like, this is state violence. And the people that we organize with, and I think, you know, the people, the community that I feel the most accountable to, I think it's, it's pretty triggering to be seeing this. And I think, I was talking to someone who one of the things we do is uh, court accompaniment um, so that folks don't so that folks feel supported. And I was talking to one of my my compas who I was support who I was going to court accompaniment with. And, you know, he was telling me, like, I feel like when I see this and I see pictures of people migrating together, like I have to relive my own story, like my own like journey to come here. Um and I, I mean, well, at least maybe you can speak to this a little bit more, but I think, I think that all I've seen, I mean, even on Facebook, even with our worker committee, like in our group chat and even between like the interactions that you and I have had, like we're just following this very closely and just trying to figure out like, how do we build, sol I mean, it's all connected, right? Like the, the stuff that's happening here, the experiences, like, you know, winter is winding, winter is coming, people are, you know, uh, winter is a difficult time, I think, for a lot of the farm workers that we organize with because there's no work. Uh, and and I think that this like alienation is something that we kind of have to perpetually push back against, right? To build and building community is like really the way that we're gonna like move forward, and you know the way that we have hope. And so um, I don't know if if a lot of these folks are I don't know how much they're aware of like the midterm elections necessarily, right? Or thinking about how this is being politicized in the midterm elections. Because I think that there's just a real investment in figuring out what's gonna happen 
Um, yeah. What would you would you say anything? En la manera en la, bueno, en la manera en la que me impacta es por la, la gente se cansa, la gente se cansa de estar viviendo la perdón, pero la misma porquería todos los días. People are just frankly tired. People are just really tired. I'm sorry for the language of just living with the same crap every day. Tenemos unos malditos gobiernos que nada más sirven para abusar de las personas. We have these damned governments that the only function that they have is to abuse of the people, take abuse of the people. Como dijo Andrea, estaba viendo en Facebook yo también unos videos de cómo los policías de Honduras tratan a las personas. Ellos no son animales para tratarlos así. Y este hombre, Trump, ni siquiera sabe qué es sufrir, por eso no sabe qué es tener necesidad. And like Andrea mentioned, I too have been following the news on Facebook, and I see the way that the Honduran police treats the migrants like they're animals. Uh, they treat them like they're not humans. And Trump doesn't has has no clue what it means to feel that ne level of necessity. Pero algo sí sé, y es lo que yo he vivido como ellos. He tenido necesidad. He pasado. Ahora sí, perdónenme, pero he pasado hambre y sé lo que esas personas están sintiendo y me pongo en su lugar. Caminar horas para llegar a un sueño americano, eso cuesta. Y cuesta la mitad de la vida de uno por dejar a sus familias atrás. And something that I do know is that I know what it feels like to have these desperate needs, uh, what it feels like to go hungry. I put myself in my own, I put myself in their shoes because I too have lived it, of walking hours to approach this American dream, and it costs you with half your life. Tal vez para este señor presidente, los billetes compran todo, pero hay algo que él no puede comprar. Y es el amor y el cariño que los padres le tienen a sus hijos y por lo cual ellos están inmigrando. Perhaps this president thinks that he can buy anything and everyone with his money, but he can't buy the love that migrant parents have for their children and that love which moves them to migrate. Y realmente yo espero que este señor jamás en su vida vaya a pasar por una necesidad porque realmente... La vida cambia, como una vez me lo dijo una persona, la vida te puede tener en lo más alto y te puede bajar hasta el suelo. And I hope that this president never has to go through that because as someone told me, life changes. It, um, one day you're at the very top and in another it just dropped you to the very bottom. Y realmente he experimentado eso. And personally I have experienced that. Um, so this is Diana. I think... <laughs> Like, where do I fucking begin with Honduras? <laughs> uh, there was a U.S. coup that took out a democratically elected president who was trying to do the most basic of reforms for minimum wage and agrarian reform in Guatemala. I'm sorry, not in Guatemala, in Honduras. But I picked, put in Guatemala because there was also a coup there in 1954. <laughs> and so there's just... Honduras has been historically the the site of where the United States launches all its counterinsurgency, disgusting, murderous techniques to take out the left, the Central American left, and the most recent manifestation being that of 
Honduras in 2009 with the support of the Obama administration and Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State. So and the fraudulent elections. And the, it, definitely, in the most recent fraudulent elections. And so the, the Honduras is just such a blatant example of the way that U.S. coups, U.S. foreign policy, militarism, and neoliberalism is producing the conditions that force people to migrate. And... Sorry, it's just it's just so so infuriating. I think that just it it's also presents an opportunity for organizations like ours to really strongly intervene and push forth really radical anti-imperialist politics. I don't see how you could be in the immigrant rights fight and not be an anti-imperialist. Because yes, our fight has to be for immediate demands against wage theft and for longer short-term demands such as the legalization of all 11 million undocumented people. But who wants to leave their homeland? And what is it going to take for our movements to address the root causes of immigration, which is U.S. foreign and economic policy? Yeah, really quickly, that just that reminds me yesterday, people were talking about how much we spend. We spend so much time talking about the right to, to migrate, but we don't spend any time talking about the right to stay. And that people have mm-hmm. a right to stay in their homes. People and have eat a, our good food and, and not eat like, our good food and not cold have, all the time. And in Western Mass. migrate to Western Massachusetts. <laughs> and people have the right to stay. And the fact that we don't talk about this discussion as fighting for the right for people to be able to stay in mm-hmm. their homes and be safe, I think that in of itself actually um, it it kind of puts a veil over all of this uh, of this history that Diana is talking about. It, it erases and, and it erases the accountability that the U.S. government has in actually, like, being responsible for funding and for perpetuating this migra- migration. Yeah. And I think, too, with that history, we can. I think there's a lot we can learn from the history of the 1980s Central America Solidarity Movement. Um, there is the history of the Pledge of Resistance, where tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, were signing a Pledge of Resistance against uh, to commit civil disobedience if the United States continued to intervene militarily in Central America. And I think we need to bring those kinds of tactics back. <laughs> I think um, we need to engage in mass disruption and target the elites in this country where it most hurts them, which is their profits. I'm tired of the same old tactics that don't yield results and people are dying. And, you know, sure, engage in in voting. Let's do um, harm reduction. But I'm that's not enough. It's not going to be enough. And it's going to we really have to think about um, really building uh, working class, working class power and thinking about disruptive, disruptive strategies. Um, I have a I have a question about feminism and um, where that fits into your work around solidarity because it, I mean farm work itself disproportionately impacts women and uh, and also you've all had interesting relationships with uh, women Deanna who have oppressed your mother you know mm-hmm. as a worker and like even um, Oralis about this this female mm-hmm. teacher you know and it's just like I wonder about the when you see like the women's movement and then these marches and everything where where do those uh where does that intersectionality hit for you and how are you um navigating that I definitely personally will proudly call myself a feminist I'm not a bourgeois feminist I am for the like a feminism that will liberate working class women um so I think about Berta Cáceres and her assassination that that's I'm with her 
I'm not with Hillary Clinton. (laughs) And so, and it manifests itself, you know, in in our day-to-day work. We have, in our model, our organization, we don't have a director. We don't have a boss. We organize as a collective of women. And that entails a certain division of labor and, and, you know, respecting and mentoring one another. And the people that we work with, you know, the committee that I work with, mainly of Salvadoran immigrants, those are mainly women. And we've made a very intentional choice of being mindful of the sexism within Latino and working class communities and making space to develop their leadership and and giving them the tools um, to participate. It also means that we do confront issues of domestic violence internally. And um, around the the women's movement particularly, I think a very clear example of that, if I can air this, um, <laughs> and it's not just unique to what happened with us. I do think that one of the biggest fights, and I spoke to, um, Raj, you and I spoke about this again, you know, we're not just up against the state and capitalists and employers and ICE. We're also up against liberalism and essentialism. Mm-hmm. Um, people who think that, who are scared to mobilize working class people who think that the system is, is um, it actually has people's interests at heart and who really operate as gatekeepers. And so in our work, we do, you know, um, work with a lot of obnoxious white liberal feminists who are not interested in the experiences of the exploitation of working class of working class women. And we also as organizers have to deal with a lot of sexism and ageism and racism because, um, you know, our ages range, but we all look really young and, you know, people are constantly either mansplaining to us or are yeah. undermining yeah. our um, our ability as as organizers. And so there is lots of ways in which I think sexism structures um, the movement. But and I also think that last thing that I'll say is that I think it's really revolutionary. Um, and Latin America has a long tradition of revolutionary motherhood. If you talk to the women that we're organizing, their their motivation for us is is because they're mothers. And I think, yes, that can be reactionary at, in, in many different contexts. But for them, it's, it's a feminist fight to keep families together. It's a feminist fight for Odalise's mom and my mom to be treated with respect and to re- deserve, uh, receive the wages that they deserve. Um, it's a feminist fight, you know, that we're fighting for Lucio Perez, who's been in sanctuary over a year. And the women who have to deal with that pain and suffering it's, it's the women, right? It's when the men are deported, um, it's the women who have to take stay behind and care, take care of their children. Or if you just have to look at the rampant sexual abuse in immigration detention centers, sexual violence is very much a key way of like how they operate and how they terrorize, terrorize immigrants. Yeah, I mean, also just l- talking about social reproduction too, you know, like thinking about the, the folks that we organize with, like, they're not just working in the farms. They're often taking care of every single aspect of our, you know, of producing life, you know, Ch- taking care of children, like child care. So, for instance, think in, the, in the name of in thinking about solidarity, one of the things that Sanctuary in the Streets organized was a child care collective. And the idea is that, you know, um, folks are coming to support the worker committee by taking care of ch- the children that mothers who want to organize bring mm-hmm. so that they can actually focus on organizing. Um, before the child care collective, it was kind of like it was like committees were a hot mess because we would have to like 
not only like cover our agenda and figure out, you know, what we're doing next and stuff, but, you know, mothers were often very, and I was often very distracted <laughs> by like, you know, sc- screaming little kids that are all playing during this time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this childcare collective really comes from the, you know, this idea that, that mothers have a right to organize and they should be able to organize and that support is crucial. And not only that, but that these space, these organizing spaces need to be accessible and, and uplifting for all, for all generation for all you know different kinds of generations um, mm-hmm. um, because oftentimes you know when we're covering heavy topics you know there were often you know f- girls that were five or six years old just sitting right next to their moms like taking this all in and so um, just thinking about solidarity that's one concrete way that I think we're we're trying to you know we are actively making this a feminist fight about, on top of everything that Diana else said. ¿Qué piensas tú sobre los derechos de la mujer en esta lucha en el trabajo que hacemos? En lo que es, he visto que una mujer siempre ha tenido que quedarse callada por algo. Something that I've seen is that women are always like forced to stay quiet and to stay silent. Pero es porque no tienen la fuerza, no tienen... Tal vez porque aún no han encontrado el arma con que pelear. It's possible because they don't yet have the strength, they haven't yet found the weapon to fight. Pero cuando encuentran la arma, <laughs> más vale que corran. But when they find that weapon, you better run. <laughs> y sí, una mujer tiene totalmente el derecho. Es una persona, como dijo Diana, a una mujer a quien le cae todo el pesor. Women have, the, you know, they have all the rights. And like Diana said, it's, it's true. All the weight uh, falls onto women. Porque si una mujer tiene un hijo, el hombre puede salir corriendo y dejarlos. If a woman has a child, it's easy for the man just to get up and leave. El supuesto hombre. You know, the, the so-called man who's leaving his family. Entonces, una mujer demuestra ser madre y padre y demuestra cómo educa a sus hijos. A mother... A woman demonstrates who has to be both mother and father and demonstrates how she's raising and educating her children. Entonces, más que todo, para mí, sin mujeres, no, no hay nada, porque mujeres son las que dan vida, mujeres son las que educan, mujeres son las que dan de comer cada día a los hijos. And for me, without women, there, there isn't anything. For women produce life, we, uh, they educate, they provide food. Y luchamos. Exactly. And, and I just added, and we do the fighting. <laughs> you can't have a, a struggle without the women. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, Thank you so much for taking the time to to do this interview and sharing all of your incredible stories and your work with us. This was just fantastic. Yeah, I've got to say, this is a really dark time, and just hearing your voices and your stories is incredibly inspiring. Yeah, we, we have a number of guests on, and we, we, we often find ourselves nodding, but I don't think we've had so many, like, fist, you know, punch yeah. in the air with, yeah. like, fuck yeah, yeah. Uh, as we've had with the old... And, and uh, so if, if you want to learn more uh, about the work that you're doing, they can go to Pioneer Valley Workers Centre, pvworkerscentre.org. Um, is there anything else that, that we can share with listeners about how to follow your work or how to be comrades in it? 
they could uh, I hate to say it but Facebook is really like where it's at oh, sweet Jesus. I know even though it's a dark it's a dark force <laughs> it's a dark force but to a degree you know it's how we're, we're spreading some some useful propaganda <laughs> so facebook.com slash PV workers center um, is where you'll find uh, more information there as well You've been listening to The Secret Ingredient with Raj Patel, Tom Philpot, and me, Rebecca McEnroy. You can find more Secret Ingredient interviews and information about the hosts at thesecretingredient.org. The Secret Ingredient is produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, where our engineer for this show was Jake Perlman. Thanks for listening. As our community grapples with developing public health concerns, the team of reporters at KUT are gathering the facts and bringing you the answers to your most pressing questions. Keep this coverage strong with your gift of support today at KUT.org. And thank you.